The scripture is from John 4, 5 through 42. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tried out by his journey, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in the spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be Messiah, can he? This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, before we jump in, I do want to say a special thank you to Lee Allen, who filled in for me last week while I was uh, gone. I appreciate your message on the grace to forgive. Uh, powerful words from 1 John. Uh, I hope that we can continue to take those with us. Today, uh, we return to our Lenten conversation on how God transforms us from the inside out. That's how God works in our lives, that we are shaped internally, and it 
reflects externally in our lives and our actions and everything we say and do. When it comes to an inside-out transformation, I think it's important for us to look at this in a linear direction. In other words, we look from the inside to the outside. And if we're looking at this in a uh, linear way, starting from the inside, it might be a good question to consider our own insides. And I mean that quite literally, our internal body structure. Do you know what the most common thing in your body is? Water. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually oxygen, uh, but that's a part of water. You know, the whole H2O thing. Uh, anyway, yes, water. Water is the most common thing in your body. About 60% of the human body is water. It's more for younger people. A newborn child has about 70 to 75% water, uh, which is a quite substantial amount uh, when you consider everything else that we have going on in our body. I mean, even our bones. You know, we, we talk about things being bone dry. Even our bones are 20% water. Fascinating stuff, right? Our brains, 86% water. Our muscles, 82% water. We have a pretty substantial amount of, of water within us. No wonder that we're told to drink around eight cups of water every day. Does anybody ever actually accomplish this? You, you can count the water in your coffee, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a pretty substantial amount, but that's because we're constantly using water. It lubricates our joints, it flows through our blood, it's something that we constantly need to stay alive. But now, what does this have to do with our lesson for today? Yes, water does play a central role in our story. <coughs> Excuse me. So much water in my saliva, I'm choking on it. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. But more importantly than the role that water plays in our story is the theme of transformation. If God transforms us from the inside out and at least 60% of our inside is water, then perhaps we need to start by seeing the transformation of the water within us. I know, it sounds like a bit of a stretch. Bear with me for just a moment here. As our story unpacks, the difference between the water that leads to thirst again and the water that is everlasting life starts to come to light. Now, of course, we can't physically change out the water in our body this way. Any kind of water we put in is going to be used up. Uh, but it does set up an important metaphor for discipleship. Out with the old, in with the new, as it were. And this metaphor for discipleship begins with a scandal. Oh, I love a good scandal. Everybody seems to love a good scandal. It's what keeps us reading the news, right? We start today with the scandal at the well. Jesus is found talking to a very scandalous person. A Samaritan. Now, if, if all the knowledge you have about Samaritans is with the uh, first word being good, just know that the Jews of this age would never have used such an expression. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. And if you were in our Tuesday morning Bible study as we went through the books of First and Second Kings, you know why there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. 
Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel between the years of about 950 BCE up to about 720 BCE. And during this time frame, Samaria was the epitome of everything that was wrong with the world. Infidelity, adultery, debauchery, I mean, you put a negative term in there, it belongs in Samaria. And so, for the next several hundred years, Jews continued to understand that anybody who came out of Samaria was a bad person. The worst of the worst. And Jesus is found here talking with one of them. It's one of the reasons why she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. It's just appalling. Secondly, she's a woman. This spells scandal all over the place. Jewish man talking with a Samaritan woman. Not only is she the lowest of the low by every means of her, of her stature, women don't have any value, by the way. The only value that's assigned to women during this time is that, number one, that they can bear children, and number two, that they're married to a man. She's neither. Uh-oh. She is a scandal because, as we find out, she's unmarried. Jesus says... Tell me about your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the person you're with now isn't your husband. She's unmarried. And not only is she unmarried, but uh, she's unmarried and with another man who's not her husband. Maybe she's an adulteress. What's going on here? Scandal, scandal, scandal. And not only that, but we must wonder what happened to the other five guys. See, during this time, grounds for divorce were really easy. She couldn't bear children, get her out of there. Probably what happens since there's no mention of her children at all in this, uh, in this tale. Heartbreaking, isn't it? Because we know today that infertility affects more women and men than we would have ever known before. And so here she is having a conversation with the Messiah. Scandal written all over it. Here's the exciting part. This woman is part of a long tradition of scandalous women. Women who boldly challenged, questioned, and talked back to God. Women like Hagar and Sarah, Miriam, Hannah, Rachel, Ruth, Rahab, Rebecca, Deborah, Mary, Elizabeth, Mary Magdalene. The list goes on and on, friends. These women who stood in history and actually made a difference. These women who stood along the faith journey and showed men what's what. Yeah, the Samaritan woman. She's a scandalous one, all right. Scandalous one for Jesus to be talking with. But what's truly scandalous about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is that, are you ready for this? She becomes a model for discipleship. And we might not think that about such a scandalous person. But do you see how she becomes the model for discipleship? Did you notice what she does at the end of her conversation with Jesus? She leaves behind 
her water jar. Now this is a very minute detail. There was absolutely no reason that John would have had to leave this detail in his gospel unless it was important. Who cares if she left it behind? Yeah, she just had like a really weird encounter where, you know, somebody who's like, we, we might call a mentalist today, but somebody who is able to like, you know, look into her experiences, into her life, and, and, and she's pretty freaked out about this. Yeah, of course she's going to leave behind her water jar. No, no, no. It's important that she left behind her water jar. Think about what discipleship is all about. What being transformed from the inside out is all about. Leaving behind the old life and embracing new life. She comes to the well thirsty for water that will leave her thirsty again. But Jesus offers her living water that will be a spring gushing up, and that's what she chooses. She leaves behind the old, the jar that she comes to draw water with. The water that will leave her thirsty again. She leaves it behind and pursues the new, the kind of water that fills to overflowing until it fills others up. Do you notice what she does when she leaves behind the old water jar? She goes and tells others about Jesus because her experience with Jesus has left her overfilled, overflowing, that it must pour out into other people. This is how the Samaritan woman becomes a model for discipleship. I love that it's raining on a day we're talking about water. So, if we're going to talk about this kind of inside-out transformation, we have to start where the Samaritan woman began. Thirsty. And thirsty for good water. So what is good water? What makes water good? I think that we can unpack this question in many ways in addition to the Samaritan woman. First, before anything else happens in this story, we find Jesus tired and thirsty. Now, I get this. I get why Jesus is tired and thirsty. I've been to Israel when it's noon and hot outside, and there isn't really shade because trees don't grow that much higher than people do. And I get why you might want a drink of water, because there's nothing you want more at noon in Israel than a bucket of it. But I also love this part of the story because it's a reminder of just how human Jesus was, that he was this tired and thirsty, that he sends his disciples on while he waits by the well. And it also sets the precedent for the first point of good water, which is that good water should satisfy thirst. The Samaritan woman comes to be satisfied. Jesus comes to be satisfied. That their thirsts might be quenched. That's what good water does. Now, I'm a big fan of water myself. In fact, if you ever see me without my water bottle, I need you to check in on me. Because it means that I have forgotten it somewhere or lost it, and I'm probably really mad at myself. I have been carrying a water bottle around with me every single day of my life since my freshman year of college, uh, and it is a game changer. I love water. I can go on and on about my love of water, by the way, uh, particularly whenever it comes to something I discovered just a few years ago, the sacred invention of the soda stream. 
I love bubbly water. Mm, it's so good. But there's one particular oddity that I, that I possess whenever it comes to my affinity for water and my water bottle. And it's pretty awkward. Uh, if I haven't completely emptied this bottle within a few hours, which is an, a rarity in itself, I usually drink these things pretty quick. If I haven't emptied this within a few hours, I have to pour it out and refill it. I know, it's very wasteful, but I can't stand the thought of drinking water that's been sitting around for a little while. I just can't. It, it freaks me out, something about stagnant water, I, I get in my head, it's just weird to me. I, I don't like walking past puddles very much because I know that that's just breeding grounds for mosquitoes and diseases. I, uh, stagnant water is just too much for me. It freaks me out. I don't even like it when I know it's perfectly clean, it's been in a sealed water bottle all day. It freaks me out. Which brings us to the next point of good water, which is that good water should be fresh, not stagnant. For the next point of good water, we turn to a different point in the lectionary. Now, for those of you who are unaware, the lectionary is a device that was devised a long time ago that essentially sets up a three-year rotation uh, for what scripture gets preached on a Sunday morning. And the idea is that you're able to hear, at least from the majority of the Bible in its entirety, uh, in a, in a three-year loop. And it comes back around every three years. Uh, today, our lectionary text for the gospel lesson comes from John 4, and it's 5 through 42, but we shortened it to 29 because it's just too long. Uh, but the Old Testament lesson uh, for today comes from Exodus chapter 17, and this is a, a weird story. In this story, uh, the people of Israel have left their enslavement in Egypt, and they have ended up in the wilderness, and they've been wandering for quite some time. Uh, here's the thing about the Middle Eastern wilderness. There's not a whole lot of water in it. There are every now and then, but you're not going to find that fresh brook flowing every now and then. And the people, hot, tired, they're thirsty. And so they start complaining to Moses and saying, why have you brought us out into the wilderness for us and our children and our livestock to die of thirst? What's the point of this? And Moses says, why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing God? What do you want me to do about all of this? It's just, just the way things are. And so Moses then goes and talks to God about all of this. Like, look, these people are complaining again. I really can't handle whiners, but what do I, what do I need to do here? And God says, you know, take a couple people over here and uh, hit a rock with a stick and it'll all be okay. It makes perfect sense, right? Uh, and so that's what Moses does, and from this rock comes a uh, gushing stream, and the people quench their thirst. Now, uh, people, preachers, I should say, like to paint the Israelites as uh, a bunch of needy whiners. That is what they do through the wilderness, but to be fair, I think there's some validity to their complaint. We kind of need water to survive and there's not a whole lot of it around. The people are concerned that they're gonna die of thirst. I think that's a fair thing to be concerned about when you're out in the wilderness without water. I'm not gonna lie. I'd be complaining a lot more than they are. 
When there's not much of something, we tend to enter into a scarcity mindset, which leads to panic. God's solution to this is to provide endless water out of a rock, leading to the point that good water should be plentiful. Now, as many of you know, I just got back from a trip to uh, Mexico. And uh, if you've been to Mexico, you probably know that the water in Mexico is not safe to drink. Don't drink the water in Mexico. That leads to what they call Montezuma's Revenge. Messy situation, if you catch my drift. Uh, and yeah, uh, so if we wanted clean water in Mexico, it had to come from bottles, bottled of wa bottles of water. Uh, and you know, that's how we had to do things, bottled water. If we wanted to drink water, bottled. This scenario, however, is not exclusive to Mexico. In fact, one in three people, get that again, one in three people globally do not have access to safe drinking water. That's a pretty substantial amount of people. Around 2.4 billion people that don't have access to clean drinking water. Oof. They have viruses, bacteria, chemicals, and other contaminants, and guess what? It's not just in other countries. In the U.S., there are towns like, you know, Flint, Michigan, Jacksonville, Mississippi, St. Joseph, Louisiana, Florence, South Carolina, Uniontown, Alabama, Campty, Louisiana, and most recently we have New Palestine, Ohio that's been popping up in the news, right? Oh, those that lack safe drinking water. So the lesson that we learn about good water is that it should be pure. What is good water? According to Jesus, it is water gushing up to eternal life. A spring of water gushing up. Good water is satisfying, not pointless. Right? And now, for a moment, we take this metaphor of water and turn it back to discipleship, to being spiritually filled up. Good water, the water that Christ provides, is satisfying. Whereas the other water that we might take in in our lives is a bit more pointless, as the author Quoheleth in Ecclesiastes points out, everything in life is meaningless. Oh, sure, we like to fill ourselves up with all kinds of things, and I mean, it reflects in our Google calendars and our schedules. We've got way too much on the docket. But it doesn't really satisfy. Good water does. Good water is fresh, not stagnant. We're in an interesting era in the life of the church in which the church is actively and rapidly dying. And one of the reasons for that is because the church has become quite stagnant. The church doesn't have a whole lot of life left in it, a whole lot of vigor left in it. The church has become insular. We'll gather together within our four walls and we'll, we'll do the you know, liturgical routines and sing the hymns and we'll listen to that uh, feel-good sermon and uh, then we go about our uh, business for the other hours of our week. The church has stagnated and we know that good water is fresh, not something that's just left lying around. 
Good water is plentiful, not limited. The church isn't doing a whole lot of outreach, at least as not as much as it could be. Again, we're pretty insular and we like to keep our fresh water to ourselves, holding on to it right here where it's safe. And it's not because we feel all that threatened by other people coming in, although there are some that do feel pretty threatened about those who can come in and take advantage of their water. No, 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 it's just because we're kind of, sorry, lazy. We don't really see the value of letting this water be plentiful for others. We don't really feel the need to reach out to those people closest to us and make sure that they're being taken care of. But good water is plentiful, not limited. Good water is pure, not toxic. I am heartbroken over the state of the church, particularly the United Methodist Church right now, uh, because uh, we have adopted quite a toxic position on a number of things. And I don't just simply mean in the United Methodist Church, you know, there is this, this great, it's, it's even stupid to call it a debate, uh, but this uh, fracturing that's happening around LGBTQ marriage and ordination. And you know what it's led people to do is, is spill out all kinds of hate speech. And it's happening on both sides. Both sides are turning against one another and, and just eating each other alive. And guess what? Everybody outside the church is looking at this and saying, that's toxic. I don't want to be a part of it. The church is dying rapidly because we have chosen the toxic, unclean, unsafe water rather than the water that Christ offers that is pure. Good water is for all, not the few. Jesus did not exclude people from coming to clean water. And you know how we know that? Because he's offering it to a Samaritan woman who is unmarried, probably an adulteress, the scandal of it all. Jesus does not exclude a single person from this living water. Why on earth is the church doing it? Good water is life, not oppression. In the U.S. government today, we have dozens and dozens of pieces of legislation, and when I say the U.S. government, I mean federal and state governments, dozens and dozens of legislation that's coming forward out of what people are calling a Christian mentality. And you know what that legislation's setting up? Oppression for people. Hurt and hardship for people. And my goodness, if we haven't done this all along, does anybody else remember the Civil Rights Movement? Oh wait, we haven't actually gotten all the way through that yet, how hateful we still are. Does anybody remember women's suffrage and the fight that women had to be able to get any kind of status? Guess what, it's still happening today. There are churches who will refuse to have my wife as a pastor because she's a woman, despite the fact that she's far more competent and intelligent than I ever will be. We continue to set up oppression in the name of Christ whenever Christ has set up life. That's good water. So if I can come down from my high horse for a moment, I want to offer you this challenge. Be filled up from the inside out by this good water.
With 60% of our bodies made up of water, we should consider what good water actually is. In the story of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, it is the water that is shared with others. Water that fills us up to overflowing such that it must be poured out. And sure, we could just let that pour out onto the ground, but why would we do that when we have so many thirsty people in our world? Good water is the, good, is the water that is shared. So let us be transformed from the inside out by giving up the water that leads to thirst over and over again and accept the water that is abundant life. And let us pray.